Well, last year, I, I, I had a, it on my heart. I was remembering back to the, the church we were in when we got saved, which was a denominational church. And uh, they had a lot of very good traditions. Um, if there were other born-again Christians in that church, I don't, they hid themselves well. Uh, so we may have been the only Christians in that church. And, and suddenly we got saved in the, in, the, in the late winter of that year. And that's, that Christmas was very different for us, of course, because the Christ that we had sung about and heard about before was now alive and in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And they had a practice uh, during the four, month, four Sundays preceding Christmas uh, of, of called Advent. And last year, I was just thinking about that and realizing that what our, in the tradition of the kind of church circles that we travel in, uh, we kind of sneak up on Christmas. And, you know, we'd have a great Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Day service, depending on the schedule. But the ministry and what went up to it, even the music very often was just kind of what we normally did. And then we had Christmas and that was nice and it was over. And I felt last year that we should do a little more of a preparation for it. And so as we came into the planning of this year, I felt it even more strongly. So we are going to begin today, as, as well as the, some of the music, which will, the Christmas music will become more and more a part of our services as we go forward this month, to begin a season of Advent here. And I'm going to begin today a four, four messages on Advent and what Advent is. And the idea is to prepare us and to, for so we can build up to the coming, build up to the celebration of the coming of Christ. Um, as Pastor Kurt mentioned to you, um, uh, because we've been talking about this among the staff, Debbie Udall, who is our children's director, director of children's ministry, has also found a, a, a program, a devotional, that she will be sending home with the parents uh, through the kids uh, so that you can follow along. The lessons aren't exactly the same, but so you can be doing at home with your kids what we're doing here. And that's a very powerful way of reinforcing uh, so that there's a one ministry going on on a Sunday and it's being carried out at home during the week. And so uh, that's what that is, that is all about. Um, why, what is Advent and why is Advent so important? We're just going to kind of set a foundation for that today. Um, there's something about anticipating. God has made us. He, he, he who made us understands us and knows us better than we do ourselves. He knows what we're like and He knows that in order to fully appreciate something, there has to be some kind of anticipation. And so if, if you've ever come home, well, people, maybe you just came through Thanksgiving and maybe you went over to somebody else's house or somebody came over to your house and when they opened the door, there was the aroma. i don't got to be careful. I don't want to lose you here. There's the aroma of turkey or pies baking or there's aroma uh, or, you, you know, men, when you come home from work or ladies, you know, and, and, and there's cooking going on and you can open the door and you can, you can smell it. What does that do? God has designed us that when we begin to smell certain pleasurable flavor, uh, we, uh, we begin to salivate. Our mouth begins to salivate. I know I'm starting to lose some of you already. <laughs> and I got a really careful second service. And because your body's getting used to eating, but it starts with smelling something, and what that does is that creates an anticipation. It's an appetite, an anticipation, so that when it comes time to the meal, we enjoy it more fully. And God has designed us that way. As I was meditating on this and preparing for this several weeks ago, I, I remembered, and I can actually I can remember 50 
one years ago when I first met Anita Trenner as a nursing student out in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I didn't fall for her right then, but not long after that I did. And in, in my every waking moment, my every thought, because I was eight hours away in college, was of when I was going to see her next. And, and for you younger people in the class, in, in the room this morning, uh, the way we communicated was I would pull out a sheet of paper and I would take a, a that's a paper, that's, that's, and I would take a pen that had ink in it and I would start out, my dear Anita, and I would write something that they called a letter. It was hard paper and it was real ink. And then I would fold it up and I would address it in an envelope. Envelopes were just for bills. And I would write her address on it and I would take a postage stamp, which was like three cents or four cents. And I would go to a mailbox and I would put it in and she wouldn't get it right away. It would be two or three days later she would get one. But in the morning mail, I would be looking because there'd be one of those from her that she had put in a post office three or four days earlier. And we did this every day. Nowadays, it's, it's so instant. But, but there was something about that anticipation. I couldn't wait for the mail to come because there'd be a letter for her, from her. And I couldn't wait to open the mail. Cause, but, that's, but see, that's all I had of her then. Because, oh yeah, we had phones back then. They, you didn't carry them around with you. They were, some of these were metal. And, 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 they, and you had to pay to use it. They would charge you by how many minutes you were on it. There was no such thing as unlimited service. <laughs> and, and it was expensive, so you didn't call during the day unless it was an emergency. You called after 8 at night. Anybody remember that? Or on weekends. And you looked at the clock to make sure because the rates were very different. So I could not afford to call her every day. And then there was moments when I could go actually see her. It was an eight-hour drive. That's the driving time. And I would leave at five in the morning, so I would get there in time for her to get out of school. And I did this every other weekend in the winter time, Through Rochester, New York, Buffalo, New York, Erie, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio, to Dayton. Why was I crazy enough to do that? Because I was in love. I'm in love. <laughs> love doesn't do that, but love does. And I couldn't wait for that moment when she would come down those stairs and we could be together. Anticipation. For some of you, the, 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 your spouse, the person you were in love with, you know, you knew them all your life. They may have been neighbors or someone like that. You didn't have that anticipation. I'm sure it was there. God made us that way. And what we want to begin to look at is God was doing the same thing for when He came to the earth. He wanted there to be an anticipation, a preparation. Back in those days when a king or a royal official would enter, would be coming into a town or a city or a village, they didn't just show up. They sent emissaries ahead to announce 
that so and so was coming, the king was coming, the 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 whoever was coming, the 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 prince was coming. And they stirred up so they would get people come out and watch them to create their anticipation. And the greatest visitation ever, the greatest arrival, the greatest time ever was when God would take on flesh and dwell among us. And He sent emissaries. And He provided a preparation so that when He would come to this earth, people would be ready to receive the gift. And we'll talk a little more about that at the end. The four weeks leading up to Christmas are called Advent. And they were called that by the early church. Advent, A-D-V-E-N-T, is a Latin word that means the coming. C-O-M-I-N-G. And it technically refers to the season of activities and focus that prepare for, to appreciate the, His coming, which is celebrated on Christmas. So we're going to take these four weeks and we're going to do just that. We're going to build up to Christmas Eve. We're going to start today by going back and, and looking at why they were anticipating. Because there were some, when Jesus came, that were anticipating His coming. We're going to look at why. Where did that come from? And then we're going to look at it in our own lives. Why, why were they looking for a Messiah? Why were they looking for a Deliverer? And then we're going to look at the promises next week that God made. God made promises all through the Old Testament. There are promises. Some of them are very clear and obvious. Some of them are a little more subtle. And we're not going to be able to look at all of them. There are too many of them. But we'll give a sampling so that you can see. And it will help us to prepare And then we're going to look at the fulfillment of those promises, of those prophecies. And we're going to examine His reception and His coming. So today we're just going to look at why. The title of this message is, Why a Messiah? Now Messiah is is the Hebrew term that, that, that the English version of that is Christ. We'll get into this a little bit, but for those of you who may not have been around, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's often referred to as Jesus Christ. I'm John Pfeffer. Pfeffer's my last name. Christ is not his last name. It's the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one, and that's what Messiah means. And all through the prophecies of God, there are references to one coming that will be anointed. The anointed one. Anointing simply means God's ability resting on somebody. It's the ability of God to rest on somebody, to do it with God's ability and God's strength. It's the anointing of God. And the, the Messiah was one that was prophesied would come, an anointed one, anointed by God. And when Jesus was launched into His ministry, one of the first things He did, and Pastor Kurt referred to it very well last week, is He went to His own hometown. He opened the scroll of Isaiah where He read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for He has anointed me. He was announcing, I am the anointed one. But they understood what that meant. That's why they got mad and tried to throw him, throw him off a cliff and stone him. They understood what it meant to be the Messiah. Why would they understand that? Because they were looking for him. They were looking for him. So why would they be looking for him? We're going to go back. Maybe this is the way my legal mind works. But we're going to go back and why, why, why at all? I mean, why not just go along with your life? Because there are people today, we'll look at this at the end. There are many of us today going through life, you know, why, why a Savior? 
All right, so God sent His Son to the earth. Why, why do I need Him? I remember, I'm going to hate to have myself. I better not do that. Okay, yes, John, stay on tune here. Okay, all right. So they were looking for a deliverer. Why? So that's what we're going to look at. So go with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we're not going to start at the beginning here because in the beginning in this story lays the foundation. And Pastor Kurt did a great job last week of talking about how... um, how, who Luke was and how Luke was oh, not, not just a, a, a physician, but he was an historian. And because he was a physician and historian, he was very precise about his information. So you see, like in chapter 2 begins with who with Caesar Augustus was and when he, where all these things were. He gives you the background and the detail. But we're going to pick up with just a little, little snippet of this near the end. Because the story here in chapter 2 is, of course, Jesus' birth. But then on the eighth day of, after his birth he was taken to the temple to be circumcised because that was what God commanded Abraham to do when God entered into a covenant with Abraham. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. God gave them a sign or the seal of the covenant and that was that every male child on the eighth day after their birth should be, should be circumcised as a mark, as a sign that they were in a covenant with, with God. And, and so... Here, I can't get into this because it'll get me distracted. Here you've got Mary and Joseph, this play we have. We've got Mary and Joseph fulfilling what the commandment was under the covenant God had with Abraham by taking this baby Jesus, who is God, in the flesh. I love that song that Mary, did you know? When you kissed your son, you kissed the face of God. Ooh, I get goosebumps just thinking of that right now. Wow. And you looked into God's eyes. Whoa. And they took him to the temple to be circumcised because that's what the covenant required. God in the flesh submitted to his own requirements. God didn't come. We'll probably talk about this as we get to the end of this Advent series. God didn't come and say, this is who I am. This is what I demand you to do. But He came to serve us. And the way He served was by submitting. Remember when Jesus comes to... I'm all over the place this morning. When Jesus comes to to, to be baptized by John the Baptist, what does John say? I'm not even fit to untie your sandals. He says, no, the law must be fulfilled. The requirements. I, I must submit I must submit. We, we have trouble submitting sometimes. You ever notice that? Yes. Wives and husbands and employees. Well, I don't, I don't want to submit. God submitted. God submitted to His own requirements. Selah. <laughs> Let that sink in. Let's go to verse 35. No, uh, 25. So as they're coming into the temple and they're preparing for Jesus to be circumcised, he was presented there. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just. He was devout, which means he was committed. And he was waiting, the New King James says, for the consolation or consoling or comforting of Israel. You notice that Consolation is an uppercase. 
Now, when this was written in the original Greek, all of this was uppercase. But the editors have put that in uppercase because the consolation of Israel is referring to the, a title or a function of somebody, and it's the Messiah. Some of the newer translations, like the New Living Translation, just says Messiah because that's who he's referring to. But the word consolation means comfort. So here's Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout. He was waiting. We're talking about anticipation this morning. He was waiting for something. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel or the Messiah to come. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26. And revealed to him, because it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 28, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, and this is what he's going to prophesy, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, the promise you made to me, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared before the faces of all the people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, we'll talk about that down the road, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. Look at this. This old man, Simeon, who spent all his days, he's been waiting at the door of the temple. We're talking about anticipation now. He's been waiting at the door of the temple because the Holy Spirit had told him that before he closed his eyes in death, he would see the Messiah. How many of us, if God told us to wait for something, would wait for years? would wait for years. He's been waiting because the Spirit of God told him that the Messiah was coming in his lifetime and he would see it. I was meditating on this this morning and, you know, well, Lord, why, why could he hear more clearly than I can sometimes than others can? And he, it goes back to me. He said he was a just man and he was devout which means he was consecrated to this purpose. There was such an expectancy, there was such a hope, because he had been told that he would see the comfort to Israel, the answer to something that God was going to send. And this morning we're going to look at what it was they needed an answer for. You ever read some places where Jesus, he, he's going along, he's talking to this disciple, he said, and Jesus answered and said, I'd go back and I want to look, where's the question? Because if somebody's answering something, there's got to be a question there somewhere. So I, I always tend to go back and look, okay, wh wh what was that there for? So if they're, if they're anticipating a Messiah, why? Why were they looking for a Messiah? Because you don't look for something you don't know you need. If you think you're all set and you don't need anything, for instance, when we're, Pastor Kurt was talking about our 
Christmas connections. And so you may be sitting there this morning and say, I got everything I need, so we tune it out then. Well, I don't need anything, so we, we tune it out. Like what most of us do during an altar call. I don't need that, so we go come for what we need, and the things we don't think we need, we tune out. And I've found in my life, I miss a lot of things because I thought I didn't need something, and God knew I needed things I didn't know I need. That, that would preach. You know, God knows what you need better than you know what you need. So instead of going to God and telling Him what you need, maybe we need to go and ask Him to show us what we need. Because a lot of times what we... we feel, oh, well, I can't go there. We'll never get this done. Okay. Now let's go on. Let's pick up um, with the next verse. Wait a minute. I want to make sure. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. So he's prophesying now. And a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. That's referring to his crucifixion. And the thoughts of many's hearts will be revealed. So this was a time of great, imagine, she's, she's, getting, she's coming to do this, obeying, and there's this man there and he starts prophesying over this child. And what he's prophesying over is, this man, this child is going to be, bring light to many, but he's going to bring hurt to your heart, because his, your heart was going to be pierced because of this. Now go, go back, now go to verse 36. Now there's another person there. There was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was of great age. And she lived with her husband for seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of 84 years. All right, so she was married for seven, and she's been a widow for 84. So she was 91 when she's, after she got, she was married 91 years ago. So I don't know how old this lady is, but she's been around quite a while. Who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So this woman is almost living in the temple, seeking something. This is what I want you to see this morning. Verse 38. And the coming in that instant, and coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption of in Jerusalem. So you have here, at the time when Jesus is bought, brought as a baby to be circumcised, you have this supernatural event taking place of this older gentleman, Simeon, who prophesies and says, I have, God showed me to wait here because I was going to see the Messiah coming. And now you have, 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 have heard this woman come saying that, 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 that she's been waiting also. So there's this anticipation. They've been basically hanging out in church because they had a sense that he was coming soon. I don't want to get off on this, but there are many today that have that same sense now that he's coming back soon. That he's coming back soon. But we're here to talk about his first coming. His first coming. So why? Why would they have this anticipation? 
Why would there be a need to have an anticipation? Why would there be a need for a Messiah, an anointed one, he's also known as a deliverer? Why would there be a need? Why would they be looking for a deliverer? And what were they to be delivered from? Well, in order to understand that, there's two basic things we're going to look at. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis 3, of course, is the story of the fall, the fall of man. God, and this is so basic, but so important. When God created that first man, and He created them together, male and female, but they were in one. I don't want to get off on that. So women aren't secondary. I don't want to get off on that either this morning. He created them, and He created them in a perfect relationship with Him. So there was nothing hidden. The last verse of chapter 2 says, They were both naked and were not ashamed. That means they were completely open. They were hiding nothing from God or one another. They had nothing to hide. They were completely open and free, and God came down and walked with them. The implication is He'd walk with them in the cool of the afternoon or the evening in the garden. And He created this very special place for them to dwell, called Eden, which means a place of delight. And He put in there everything for them to enjoy. See, God's not stingy. God is not some, does not get pleasure out of us struggling and suffering. God is not a killjoy that wants to take your... God provided a place of delight, of Amazing, oh, amazing foods to eat. Ooh. Amazing pleasures. James says, God created pleasures for us to enjoy, but we've got to do it His way and under His terms. But God doesn't want you to not enjoy life and the things of life. He just wants to know they don't hold you. And that you'll listen to His warning, because some of those things that look like they're pleasures and enjoyment are going to kill you. He created this place of delight, of joy, and of peace. And they had a job. But the job was easy because everything worked with them. It didn't fight them. And chapter 3 comes along. And Satan comes. I don't want to get off on this. We've talked about this before. There's so many things in this to teach from that we live today. And Satan tempted them to take their life into their own hands. Instead of living a life that God provided and submitted to God to become their own God and make their own decisions for themselves, including deciding whether they were going to do what God said or not. That's what was at stake. And they fell. The first thing they did is when they, is they realized they were both naked. They didn't know that before the fall. They became self-conscious. They were no longer conscious of God. They were more conscious of themselves than they were of God. And that's what we've been ever since. So their first instinct was to cover up their own shame by their own effort, by their own planning. And now God shows up on the scene. God always shows up on the scene sooner or later because there has to be an accounting for what was done. God says, "What what have you done? And he starts with the man. And the man does this. (laughs) Been doing it ever since. There are only three of us here, God, and I'm the only one that's innocent because it's the woman you gave me. (laughs) So I don't know whether it's her fault or your fault, but it's not mine. 
And then he goes to the woman. And I think that's what we're going to look at. No, he goes to the woman. And she said, verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. In other words, not my fault either. The devil made me do it. <laughs> so the Lord, now the Lord's going to address each of them in reverse order. So he starts addressing the serpent, and then he's going to address the woman, and then he addresses the man. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this thing, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust and the day, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that's, that's strife, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, what's, what's Satan's seed? I never really focused on this till I was working on this message. Satan has seed. Seed is offspring. Satan has offspring. Well, I believe the demons are his offspring. They weren't born of him, but they're, they're his followers. But Jesus refers to some people as offspring of the devil. Over in John, we're not going to turn there, but in, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he's, Jesus is having this discussion or confrontation with the religious leaders. And, and you know, they're saying, that, you know, who, who are you? Because he just said, I am all kinds of things. And they knew what I am meant because it refers back to Genesis 3 when God revealed himself to, to Moses as I just am that I am. I, Jehovah, I am. And in a number of places, Jesus said, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And those words, I am, rang in the ears of religious leaders because they could not say that name. Their custom was when they came in scriptures to Yahweh or Jehovah, they would, they would go, blip, skip it. You know, and sometimes when they're interviewing somebody and they use words they shouldn't use and they can't say on television, they go, blip, they, they bleep it out. What's that? That's what they did. They, they were too, those words were too holy to come off of unholy lips. Oh, that we would have a little bit of that. And, 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 but, but they pushed it to an extreme. And so when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, that was like fingernails going down a chalkboard to them. It, they got angry. That religious anger came out of them. And so Jesus is in this back and forth with them. And they said, you know, wait a minute. We, <laughs> we know who your parents were. Mary and Joseph. You can't be God's son. You're born of Mary and Joseph. We know your father. And Jesus says, yeah, your father is the devil. So he was calling them offspring of Satan. And before you and I were born again and came to Christ, we were also offspring of Satan. Satan was our spiritual father. In Acts chapter 13, Paul has this run-in with, an, with, an, with a sorcerer. I mean, Peter. Uh, and he calls him the son of the devil. But let's read the rest of this verse. Let's get to the good part. I'll put enmity, verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed 
and her seed. Notice C is singular. Notice here it has a capital S. Now, again, in the original Greek and Hebrew, it didn't. He's talking about an individual. So here, God, at the very beginning, from the very, from the very time when man has rebelled, God is announcing there is coming one. Well, let's go on. And he shall bruise your head, and that's a fatal blow. But you shall bruise his heel. That's an injury to him that's not fatal. That's referring to the crucifixion. But in the crucifixion, he's going to destroy your work. He's going to defeat you. So here God is announcing in this whole response to what they've done, God is announcing where man now stands. Man is now separated spiritually from God. And now man is under a curse. And we don't have time to go on and look at it, but God announces a curse. God didn't strike them with a curse. They released the curse because they got out from underneath God's protection. We talked about that. When we talked about undercover. We had that beautiful scene of the, of the, umbrella, the red umbrella in the rainstorm. And so they got out from underneath God's protection and they stepped into a curse. And now everything that they do is going to be fighting them. The world, earth is going to fight them. And it's fighting us today. And God announces this. So we're looking at now why a Messiah. We're looking at what do we need to be delivered from. The root of it goes back to this scene. Rebellion against God. The consequence of that rebellion is there was a curse released into the earth. A curse in the earth itself that man was to work. A curse in their life. Sickness and disease now entered into the world. This is why we know it's not God's will that we be sick. God didn't create. In chapter 1 and 2, there was no sickness. God did not say, and in the garden, there's sickness over here. If you want some, you know, a little cancer over here, you go visit over here. Give it like a little pneumonia. There's some over here. It's here to bless you. No, it was not there. It entered with the curse. It entered with the curse. And Galatians says Christ came to redeem us from the to deliver us. Yes. So the question this morning is, why did they need a Messiah? Why did they need to deliver? Because the root of why they needed a Messiah was to deliver them from the power of sin and all of its consequences. Because sin was released into the world because man chose to step out of God's kingdom and try to establish a kingdom of his own. But man does not have the ability to establish his own kingdom. He either serves under God's kingdom, or he serves under Satan's kingdom. And so when he stepped out of God's kingdom, he immediately stepped into Satan's kingdom with a deception that he was going to be God, master of his own destiny. I'm convinced, now this is just me, I don't plan to ever find out. But I'm convinced that the theme song in hell is, I did it my way. (laughs) When you try to do it your way, you're doing it Satan's way. Because you don't have your own way. That's Satan's illusion so that you'll rebel against God. And every person born 
from that time on was born into this condition. So what's God going to do? The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, is God preparing and revealing a plan to restore mankind. And we don't have time to go through all that, but I'm just going to tell you kind of a general summary. God decides to do something in a way, because God's smarter than we are. Oh, I got to So God decides, he said, what I'm going to do is, the way I'm going to let you know what I'm like, is I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a special relationship with a special people. Because out of relationships, you can get to know somebody. And so, so he said, I'm going to, but, but I don't want to pick a nation that exists. I'm going to create my own nation. So I get credit. Nobody else does. So he chose a man named Abram, who was out of a, out of a country that worshipped the moon. And God began to reveal himself to him and called him to leave his country, go out, and he would give him a land that he promised to him. And he said, and I will bless you. And I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse those that curse you. It's in Genesis chapter 12. God makes promises to Abraham. And then he goes in and he, in chapter 15. He enters into this covenant with him, which is done in a number of stages in, in 15 and then in 17. And God gives them a, a special land and prospers him more than anybody else on the earth at the time. And God blesses him. God enters into a covenant with him. That's what we talked about. The, arc, the, the rite of circumcision was, was part of the entering into that covenant and everybody born out of him. And then God begins to prophesy through them, and we'll talk about this next week, that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through you, there's going to come a Messiah. And he says, I will bless you, and I will prosper you, and I will protect you, and I will provide for you, as long as you serve me. Part of that provision was, when a famine was coming, God sent Israel into Egypt to be provided for and sent one of Israel's sons, Joseph, ahead of time. And through all those circumstances, Joseph became the administrator of the famine relief program that now his family was going to be blessed by. And then they overstayed their need to be in Egypt. It's in Genesis, in Exodus chapter 1. They became more, they stronger than the Egyptians, so the Egyptians had to enslave them. And the Israelites, even though they had a covenant with God, allowed Pharaoh to enslave them. For 430 years they were there. And they cried out, and God already had a deliverer prepared. A deliverer, his name was Moses. And God took him through an 80-year training program. And brings him down, and then brings them back out by ten supernatural events that God gets them delivered out of the hands of the mightiest ruler in the world at the time, Pharaoh. And then God tries to bring them to a land that he had to provide them for. And God makes another covenant with them on the Mount Sinai. And God gives them the Ten Commandments, rules to live by, to assure. And God says, if you will keep these commandments, then I will bless you, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you. And the rest of Israel's history is essentially a testimony of their failure to do that, of their continued rebellion, of their worshiping idols. In this nation, God takes through a series of three patriarchs and then some judges, and then God takes his kings over them. They, they, they decide, we want to be like every other nation, so we want, to, we want a king to serve us, not you. God, see, God offered to be their king. 
And they rejected God as a king because they wanted to be like everybody other other nation and have a king they could see. Now that's a powerful teaching. God said, okay, but here's what it's going to cost you. They're going to tax you. I don't need to tax you. They're going to tax you. They're going to take your sons and daughters in service and list all the things that they're going to do. And so he chooses Saul. Saul rebels. He chooses David, who becomes faithful, and then David's son Solomon. And then when Solomon passes on, Solomon's son decides to listen to the young counselors and not his father's counselors, and the kingdom's divided. There are 12 tribes. The 10 northern tribes rebel against Solomon's son and the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. I give you that background because now what happens is the northern ten tribes over a series of years gradually begin to just reject Jehovah. And the nation of Assyria comes in and captures them and scatters them and they're called the lost tribes of Israel today. They're still scattered. We're talking about why they're looking for a deliverer. We're talking about why Israel knew they needed to deliver. I'm telling you what they went through. The basic problem of sin we all face, but they had made a, God had made a covenant with them and they broke the covenant. They disobeyed the covenant. The northern ten tribes rejected God and they ended up being dispersed until the end times. The north, southern two tribes, which is outlined primarily in Isaiah up through chapter 30, 35. Those tribes, they never rebelled against God. They just do what we in church do today. They played lip service to Him. They went to church, they gave their tithes, and they went home and worshipped other gods. They had God plus their idols. They had God, they, didn't, they were hedging their bets. <laughs> in case Jehovah doesn't come through, maybe Asheroth will come through. And Isaiah, the first 35 chapters, is God outlining this and other things. Then the 35 through 39 is a story of Hezekiah. And there's a lot of reasons for that story. Hezekiah was a righteous king, but he made one huge mistake. The king of Babylon sent some emissaries over and he showed them their riches. And when he did that, they got an appetite that we can take this nation and so God allowed Israel, the Judah, the southern, ten tri- two, southern two tribes, to be taken into exile. Very different than being scattered. They were taken as a nation, except for a small remnant. They were taken as a nation, and they were brought into Babylon, which is the predecessor of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened there is what God allowed them to do is basically what... The, see, the, 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 the Assyrians, when they would capture you, the way they protected themselves against an uprising is they scattered you so you could never communicate. That's another message. But the Babylonians decided the best way to have you serve us is to keep you together. But we'll just let you integrate into our culture and society. So about 90% of the Jews integrated into the Babylonian society. And then after 70 years, God gave them the opportunity to return to Israel, to Jerusalem, and only those that still had a heart to serve God had a desire to go back. The rest of them just kind of didn't care. Have a great time, guys. And God used this as a method, and God does this to sift out where our hearts are. He didn't say, look, you 10%, I'm calling you to go back. You 90%, you got to stay. No, He just lets you do what you want to do. And then we don't have time to get into it. The way they lived their everyday life determined those that would go back because the ones that wanted to go back went back. 
the ones that liked the ease of life where they had it, they just assimilated into the society. So all of this explaining to you why at the time of Christ there was an awareness, we're in trouble. We need somebody to come. God, you promised us. We need somebody to come and to rescue us and to deliver us. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 is filled with God's promises. We'll look at some of them next week. Filled with God's promises to send a Messiah a deliverer. God promised over a long period of time that He would send someone special who would redeem them back and restore them back into that relationship that they had with Him. Now listen carefully. At the time of Jesus' birth, the average Jew was aware of all this. Because unlike today in our religious circles, they had the first five books of the Bible. And a young Jewish male had to memorize them, plus the book of Isaiah. So they knew it, and they would rehearse at certain festivals. They would rehearse part of the story. They still do today, because they're still waiting for the Messiah. The only difference between them and us is we know who the Messiah is, and that He's come. A veil, it's the Bible says, is still over their eyes. They're still waiting those that are interested. And so at Jesus, at the time that we're going to study, for, celebrate for Christmas, the basic Jews, was, were, they were aware of all this. They were aware that, that there was a need. They were aware, but, but here's the problem. We don't have time to get into it. We're going to look at, as we get further into the study, they didn't understand the real issue. Because what had happened in the meantime is they had been conquered by Rome. And the reminder of Roman, Roman dominance was there at every street corner because there were soldiers marching through the street. And you've seen the old movies of them marching in and out of the streets. So in their mind, they needed to deliver from Rome. So what we're going to see, I'm getting ahead of myself, what we're going to see is they, many of them missed the Messiah because they were looking for the, a, the wrong type of deliverer. But they were looking. They were anticipating a deliverer to come. All this is going to set the stage for next week because we'll begin to look at the promises. But see, they won't listen to the promises if they don't really have a need. But you know, we're like Israel. We need to realize we needed a deliverer. I remember when I was God was dealing with me and I, was, I wasn't saved and I'd been raised in church. I was a deacon in our church. And, 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 but something was beginning to work at my heart. That's a long story. I've shared it before. But I, I, was, I was what you'd call a good sinner. And I don't mean by that that I sinned well, although I probably did. But I didn't cheat. I didn't lie. I was faithful to my wife. I was a good person. I was in church every Sunday gave money. We didn't know about tithing, so we tipped God. But, but, but I, 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 I didn't see where I had a need. God had to open my eyes. But I began to see it through reading scriptures. I just had a fascination. I wanted to know this Bible. What is this Bible about? So I began to read through it. 
And I'll never forget the night that I came. It's a longer story than this, but I came to in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's around chapter 5 in the end. Jesus is saying, he's setting up the standard. He said, you've heard in the Old Testament, do this. But I'm telling you, do this. And it's a much higher standard. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And then he says this statement. Because I'm thinking along, well, yeah, okay, that's, that's a tough standard. I mean, the basic standard is don't kill. All right, I haven't killed anybody. Don't lie, I don't lie. Well, <laughs> often. <laughs> you know, all these basic things that the Old Testament said, I, 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 I have kept those from my youth. And then Jesus ups the standard. And then he nails it with this statement. And this is what reached me. He said, be perfect as my Father's perfect. And suddenly, literally the words that came out of my mouth, I can't do that. I need someone to save me. And I heard my own words. It took a revelation from God to realize, see, here's the issue, because we're all raised in life to judge ourselves by comparing ourselves with ourselves. It's in, I think it's in Romans. And so, I thought I was a good person because I was comparing myself with the other lawyers I worked with. That's a joke. It's supposed to be. I compared myself with other people. And so the people that I didn't think were as good, I kind of looked at them and said, then there were other people I wanted to stay away from because I thought they were better than I was. So I liked hanging around with people because they made me feel better about myself. And then I, what I discovered in, that, in those verses is, God doesn't measure me by you. And He doesn't measure you by me. He measures us by Himself. Unless our righteousness is equal to His righteousness, we're dead. And this is the challenge today. In Romans 4, Paul talks about the faith to be saved, and he talks in there about, about being, uh, we can't earn our salvation. He said, if, if, if what you're getting is a wage, then you've earned it, and you're entitled to it. And what, what, did the, what did Adam and Eve do? The moment they realized they were naked and they'd blown it, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover over. They tried to make up for their own sin by their own works. And God ripped those off and He made a covering for them by sacrificing an animal, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of an animal's blood, their sin could not be covered over. By the works of their own hands, their sin could not be covered over. And you and I struggle with that today. It's called self-righteousness. I can't come into God's presence to say, because you don't know what I was like yesterday, Pastor. I was nasty to my spouse. I was in a bad mood. And I didn't read my Bible this week. Well, that's not good. But you don't get into heaven by reading your Bible. Well, read, how many? God isn't sitting up there with a, with a reading plan. And so you've got 85%, that's good enough, but 84%, you're not getting in here. And your church attendance, mm, we need to attend church. 
We need to read our Bible, but not to get God's approval. Amen. You can't do anything to have God approve of you more or approve of you less. God loves you no matter where you are. But receiving His love, the more, the more you realize, Paul, uh, Peter says this in one of his letters. He says, those that have been forgiven of much, oh, Jesus said this, those that have been forgiven of much, love much. Those that have been forgiven of little, love little. The reason the Pharisees were being kept out of the kingdom of God is they didn't think they needed a Messiah. The poor people knew they did. The sinners knew they did. This is why the sinners would come and sit at His feet and the Pharisees would argue with Him. Because the sinners knew they needed help. They didn't understand what it was. They just knew they needed help. So before we begin to look next week at the prophecies, the promise, they won't mean anything to us unless we understand. See, if you're desperate, you know you're in trouble, you want to hear some word of hope or encouragement. You want to hear there's a way out. If you think you're fine, oh, those prophecies are nice. But when you're desperate for help, for a deliverer, for deliverance, that God would offer somebody, this is why Simeon, this is why Anna were waiting, because they knew they needed a deliverer. Let's pray. Father, as we come into this Christmas season, we're called Advent, we're asking you to prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts, not for a great Christmas day, that's wonderful if we have that, but prepare our hearts, Lord, to treasure what you did on that Christmas when you sent your son to be born of a teenage girl and her husband in the humblest of circumstances why you would step out of heaven and come to this earth may we come through this Christmas season with a greater understanding and anticipation to celebrate what it is you did for us that night in that stable. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to our need for a Savior. That every day we still need Him. Even though we may have given our lives to Him and received Him, we still need Him every day, every moment. Because we tend to get self-sufficient and think, well, I did that 20 years ago and now I'm out there on my own trying to serve God as hard as I can. No, we need Him every moment of every day. But we don't realize it. Help us, Holy Spirit, in this season to realize this. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want anybody...